Hello and welcome to your local brown feminist. In this podcast, we will have unfiltered, honest and unapologetic conversations about feminism, pop culture and everything intersectional. And I am your host, Prakshi. I'm a student of law, blogger, activist and a proud feminist. In this podcast, I will be interviewing some incredible folks whose work have inspired me so much. These conversations will be fun and candid. So, stay tuned. In this very first episode, I will be joined by Hannah. She's a professional counselor, personal coach, public speaker, and activist who specializes in areas of social justice, fat liberation, mental health. Thank you so much, Hannah, for joining. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, I've been so inspired by your work. Following you on social media gives me so much of insight, you know, to check my privilege and to unlearn. It's just been such a such an honor speaking to you, and I'm looking forward to learning and unlearning a lot through this conversation. Yeah, absolutely. I always love hearing that my work has been meaningful for folks. Yes. So, you know, I want to first delve into a little into your personal life. Uh, so what was growing up like? Were you always a large bodied person in your teenage? And what was it like? How did people around you treat you around that? You know, your teenage, what was that like? You know, so it's really interesting because when I look back at pictures of myself when I was younger, I actually don't necessarily think that I actually was a fat person. I think that I might have been marginally bigger (laughs) than Mm. my peers. Um, But thinness in my household was really, really valued heavily. And Mm. so the fact that I was bigger than other people my age um, was, was a problem. And so in my house, I was put on diets at a fairly young age. My parents had me working out very frequently. Um, so it was, it was always a strong message that I needed to lose weight. And I felt that super early on, like some of my earliest memories from my childhood involved me like hiding food or like hiding the fact that I was hungry or that I wanted to eat because it felt like it wasn't okay and I wasn't allowed to be hungry and I wasn't allowed to kind of honor those natural hunger and fullness cues. Um, And so, yeah, I definitely grew up in an environment both like in my family life and also in my school life where there was a huge amount of pressure to be thin. And so for me, that meant losing weight, which was just super detrimental and led to some pretty severe disordered eating. Yeah. So do you think while you were growing up, the representation in the media or what you saw in pop culture and movies, and that kind of impacted the way you were viewing yourself? Oh, absolutely. (laughs) Yeah, I I think that always does, you know, media representation has such a huge role to play. Yeah, and it's it's so cool to see how much that's changed since my childhood. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, it it wasn't that long ago, maybe like 
years ago, whatever, um, like I never would have seen a, a fat body being like the romantic lead in a rom-com. I never would have seen like performers like Lizzo who are like not hiding their bodies, but actually like celebrating them. Like that just like literally never would have happened in the 90s and early 2000s. It was just exactly the opposite of that. Yeah. So initially you said that you were having eating disorders, right? And people around you made you feel not so great about your body. So yeah. what was the time around when you unlearned and you, you know, developed self-love or figured out that, you know, maybe I'll stop dieting or having all of this. So what was the transition like? When did you realize? So, yeah, so I continued dieting and disordered eating into my early 20s. Um, and it kind of fluctuated in severity, but I would say the most severe it ever was, was when I was in college and like right after I got out of college. And mm-hmm. I had started seeing a therapist at the time and I loved her, I still do. And mm-hmm. she, she, I think was like very gentle with me and like wasn't pushing super hard yet in mm-hmm. terms of like all of the research <laughs> that she actually mm-hmm. had because it turns out she actually practiced from a health at every size perspective. And that was something that I had never heard of. I didn't know what that was. Um, And I still was very, very much in the diet mindset and was like very fixated on weight loss when we started working together. And after a while, I remember sitting in her office and, you know, like the whole therapy scene, I was on a comfy couch, I had my box of tissues. And I just remember saying, like, I think this is just the size I'm supposed to be. Like, I think that this is literally just what my body is supposed to look like. If I have to fight this hard to make it smaller, I don't think it was meant to be smaller than this. And I think that was kind of her opportunity to see an opening. And she was like, yeah. And it's funny that you should mention that because there's a lot of data to support what you just said. And so that was like groundbreaking news to me. And so she she gave me so many resources to look into. She sent me books and articles and podcasts all about health at every size and intuitive eating. And for for someone like me who really, really values like education and information, I just devoured that. And I started I started reading research studies about it and about how like how diets don't work. They never here's what happens. In the short term, diets work like crazy, right? Like in the short term, people lose a ton of weight. But then after the two to five year mark, basically everybody gains all the weight back and it has nothing to do with lack of willpower which is the thing we're told is always the problem right it has to do with the fact that when you restrict your food intake your metabolism slows way down and so it literally thinks you're starving to death and it is trying to protect you and so it is trying to conserve energy as a means of survival And so we've known for a very long time (laughs) that this was the case. And so learning about all of this and about how all of the dieting and restricting that I've done throughout my life probably caused way more harm in the long run than good um, was just super, super eye-opening. 
And so that process of like education, you know, gathering all of that information and really consuming it um, and like, you know, checking it against other sources. But then also like the fact that I was in therapy at the time, at the same time that I was going through all of this. And I had such an amazing supportive therapist who like really wanted me to actually like live a meaningful life. Because the thing that I remember thinking so much when I was in the depths of my dieting and disordered eating was that I'm not living. Like, this is not Mm, my life. All of my time and energy and resources goes to this. And I have to, like, make sacrifices. Like, I can't go out to eat with my friends. I can't go out and, like, do things where there's going to be food present because it has to be, like, my food and my portions and, like, da-da-da-da-da-da-da. And it just is so limiting. And, and one of the things that also happens when people are so in the diet mindset is that you're constantly putting things off in your life that you want to do until you lose weight. It's this constant carrot hanging in front of you that you're chasing. And it's totally elusive. You're never going to catch it. It's never going to be a lifelong sustainable thing. But right, like people tell themselves, I can't travel until I lose weight. I can't get a romantic partner until I lose weight. I can't start wearing the clothes that I really want until I lose weight. And so it's this horrible catch 22 where you are putting all of the things that you actually want your life to be on hold while you pursue this like uncatchable thing yeah yeah so i mean when you were speaking i was just relating to you know my personal experience i've always been a very skinny kid okay and Mm -hmm. it's just how i've been like my metabolism or whatever i don't eat a lot but I'm supremely lazy as people would call it. So I'm not into sports, working out, never ever. And it didn't bother me because I was yep. conventionally slim. So, you know, nobody complained. But I'll tell you what happened during the whole lockdown situation because of the pandemic. I mm-hmm. used to be home all the time. So I would just eat and like not move. Even the work involved was just sitting on my bed. So I gained a lot of weight, which to me for the first time, I gained so much weight. Uh, you know, I've got like a little bit of tummy which comes out in everything I wear because everything is pretty skinny. And there's this suddenly like I'm 20 now and all throughout my life this wasn't an issue at all. And now I'm mm-hmm. suddenly, I'm like, oh my god, I don't know how to deal with it because you know, my teenage was super uh, smooth because I fit into the conventional body type. And now suddenly mm-hmm. I don't know what to do. And I cribbed and cried about it for the first few weeks. I was like, I need to lose weight. Nothing is fitting me. And Mm. I tried the whole losing weight thing. I was like, okay, I'm going to work out. And I figured out, I just hate working out. Like, I just don't (laughs) enjoy it at a bit. I see see people saying that they enjoy the process of it. And, you know, they should do it. But I just hated it. Almost felt like a struggle each day to, you know, spend those 30 minutes. And I was like, I'm going to give up. I can't do this. You know, whatever is going to happen, I can't do this anymore. So, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, when I do see, you know, representation of people on social media talking about it, it gives me that reassurance that, you know, it's okay if I don't want to work out and it's okay. Yeah, it is okay. So, this this is something that I feel really passionately about because just diet culture has ruined exercise in a lot of ways 
Like, mm. um, moving moving your body is seen as a requirement for thinness, right? Like, you have to do yeah. this thing. It's obligatory. It's not fun. There's no, like, actual joy or skill building. It's all just, like, repetitive things that everybody hates but that you have to do. <laughs> yeah. And for me, because I did that, I like, so part of my eating disorder was compulsive exercise that was a really really big part of my disorder and redeeming that once I actually decided like no fuck that I'm not like (laughs) I'm not killing myself for this thing that I'm never going to achieve anymore um I just remember like having a really hard time getting figuring out a way to move my body in a way that wasn't tied to like punishing myself or like trying to make myself smaller, trying to make myself less. And that is something that I luckily am able to do now. It took a super long time for me to sort of destigmatize exercise. Mm. Um, but honestly, I'm just so, so convinced that the key is to find something you really love even if it is not the thing that is going to burn the most calories if it's the because right that's a that's a diet mindset perspective which is like i have to do the hardest thing the thing that's going to make me sweat the most and be the most miserable so that i can burn as many calories as humanly possible Um, when in reality like you might just love going on walks (laughs) or like you might just love dancing yeah exactly yeah that's the thing for me i dance sometimes yeah or like you might just love going to like the pool with your kids and swimming like whatever Mm. the thing is yeah that makes sense you know just doing something that you enjoy and not like trouble yourself and go through that pain yeah absolutely and it's been so it's it's such a clear double standard too because right like what you said like um described like you know that your lifestyle was relatively sedentary but nobody said anything because you were thin right yeah like it was okay and I find that so much and I I have so many friends and people I'm close with who are thin and we're we're in a good spot now where we can talk about all of this in a weight neutral way but like they'll say things like they'll tell me that they hate running and that running is like the worst form of exercise which by the way I could not agree more I don't (laughs) understand people who run running is the worst it's terrible (laughs) um but the fact that they say that is like oh yeah it's just like a quirky part of their personality like it's all good it's just like individual to them but if I was at a public setting and I said that I hated running every person in the room would be like well yeah because you're fat like they would immediately think that it was like a result of my body size. Yeah, 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 yeah. Makes sense. That's so true now that you said it out loud. Mm-hmm. So I mean, I've I've seen a lot of your uh, videos about eating disorders, right? So there's one mm-hmm. question I wanted to ask was, uh, you know, what do you think are some of the most common myths about eating this disorder that you would want to bust right now? Yeah, uh, there are so many. Um, <laughs> probably, probably the biggest one is that eating disorders have an image, right? They are exclusive to like thin white teenage girls, yeah. um, which is just such, such bullshit. Like I can't even <laughs> explain how, how wrong that is. So when, when I was a therapist in an eating disorder treatment center, um, we had clients of every race, 
every gender, every sexuality, every age. We had we had people who were in our program who were in their 60s and 70s. Like it is just it's not it's not as restrictive as that. It, like we had we had men, we were people who were trans or non-binary. Um we had lots of people of every different race and we had people in every body size you could imagine. And again, keep in mind, this was in a eating disorder treatment program. It was a partial hospitalization program, which means that it was like a fairly high level of care. It was a fairly intense level of care. And we had people with restrictive eating disorders like anorexia or bulimia who were in larger bodies. Like that happens. And they, like, it doesn't matter that you're in a larger body if you're not getting the nutrients you need you're going to be malnourished <laughs> like yeah. people don't under people don't actually understand what malnourishment is they think like oh it's just being thin it's like no it literally means that you're not getting nutrients like it literally means that you're not getting the various things that your body needs in order to function well like that is actually what it is and yeah we also had people with binge eating disorder and by the way some of the people we had in the program who had binge eating disorder were thin <laughs> so like we had people of every possible body size and that is just such a myth right which is that like it's these like thin white teenage women and that's it those are the only people who have eating disorders and like that's the end of the story which is just nonsense like i can't <laughs> i can't convince people that like my lived experience is real just like nobody can but it is and like i i just cringe every time i hear people like talking about how like oh but eating disorders aren't like that common right like most people grow out of them they're not that serious and it's like okay well i mean eating disorders are actually super common <laughs> at least in the united states it's about nine percent of the population has or will have a clinically diagnosable eating disorder and i'm sure around the world that number is similar or potentially higher just depending um, yeah and it's just yeah, it's just really problematic. Yeah, I think it's very true because I've probably heard people use the word thin and malnourished interchangeably, right? That's how it's right. stereotyped. Yeah. yeah, like again, just such a clear example of like not understanding what malnourishment actually means. Yeah. I was just wondering, uh, you know, what is the difference per se between say fat liberation which if i have to look at it it's more like a social justice movement to the term mm-hmm. very commonly used on social media body positivity uh, is there a difference what is it yeah absolutely there is a very distinct difference um so first let me actually just give a like a little bit of history about what fat, fat liberation is so fat liberation is a social justice movement that started in the US in the 1960s and has since grown into a global movement. Um, And essentially the whole purpose of fat liberation is to demand rights and equal treatment for fat people. It has nothing to do with your internal emotions or attitudes about your own individual body. It is about changing the policies and systems and institutions and social attitudes that oppress fat people, right? So this is the external work. This is not the internal work that you would do in therapy, that you would do if you're pursuing self-acceptance. 
Um, this is the external work. And it's it's inherently political, hmm. intersectional, and it often overlaps with other social change movements. So that is a really big component of fat liberation, which is this is about changing literal legislation. This is about changing actual policies that exist and either directly oppress fat people or fail them by like omitting them. And that is a big, a big problem that happens a lot. Um, and then, so th- how that compares to the other things, right? So the things I think most of us are kind of familiar with, and I'm actually going to break these into two different categories. I think most of us are familiar with the concept of self-acceptance yeah. and body positivity. Yeah. And again, these are two, these are two different things. And so self-acceptance is about the internal work, right? Of healing the negative mental and emotional impacts of fat phobia. Although you don't need to be fat to pursue self-acceptance. We're just talking about it in this context. Yeah. Um, And it's about the individual pursuing their own healing, right? So this can look like going to therapy, engaging in a support group, finding positive community with uh, fat accepting people, and working to unlearn harmful messages and replace them with empowering information. Okay, so that's self-acceptance. Then we get to body positivity, (laughs) which is this really interesting thing that we've created that's sort of a watered down and sellable hybrid of self-acceptance and fat liberation. It's a tiny bit like self-acceptance in that it encourages people to sort of be accepting or positive about fat bodies so long as they are not too fat, right? And as long as they fall into this sort of image of being like a good fatty. And right, like a good, (laughs) this is ridiculous, but like, this is a thing that people really think like, so a a good fatty is somebody who like performatively like eats vegetables, exercises, like does all of these very visible things to engage in health promoting behaviors, right? So if somebody is doing these same things in private and nobody knows about it, they would still be considered a bad fatty, right? Because there's a very strong performative aspect of it. And you need to constantly be proving your worth and proving that you're good. So it's a little bit, it's a little bit like self-acceptance, but only again, if you're not too fat and if you have meet this perception of being a good fatty. And then it's a tiny bit like fat liberation because (laughs) it sort of encourages people to treat fat people with respect. But again, so long as they're not too fat. (laughs) There seems to be like a very like distinct cutoff point at which people think like, all right, well, you're no longer deserving of respect or you're no longer deserving of equal treatment, which is just bullshit and is the absolute antithesis of what fat liberation truly is. So it's kind of this like, again, watered down version of these two things, but it's not really effective at either of them. And the whole thing is that it uses, like, infotainment on social media more than anything. And and it's used as a marketing tool very, very often. Um, And then the other thing that's really important to keep in mind about body positivity is that it very much centers thin, able-bodied, cisgendered, white, hetero bodies. And it is almost exclusive to them. There is very, very limited representation across racial lines, across like 
size and sexuality and gender. And oftentimes it has become a buzzword for a lot of branding campaigns because people like the abstract concept of body positivity, even if it just further venerates the bodies that already have power. Yeah, I feel like when you were uh, talking about this distinction between fat, fat and acceptable fat, the only example that was coming to my mind was, say, you know, if you just browse through the hashtag body positive on social media, there will be this fat person, but who will be pretty conventionally, you know, or people considering, you know, saying that, oh, this trans person is very beautiful because the person fits into your cisgendered idea of beauty. So it's this very, uh, I think, very double standard that, that just shows. Yeah, it has a really high emphasis on acceptable beauty. Yeah. Right? So even if you even if you are a little bit fatter, and again, not too fat, that's very important. Yeah. <laughs> but even 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 if you are like a little bit fatter, like you still have to have this incredibly like beautiful symmetrical like Eurocentric featured face. Yeah. Right? Like you you can't have a double chin. You have to have the right kind of proportions. You have to be hourglass shaped or pear shaped. You cannot have a large stomach. Like that is really really critical. And so there are still these very very strict parameters on like what it means to be an acceptable fat person in the realm of body positivity yeah so when we're talking about uh, you know fat liberation being a social justice movement that's what is my next question about i feel like when we talk about fat phobia people look at it from a very narrow perspective you know say like oh this person is fat maybe i don't like her or him but the whole idea that the problem is so much more enormous, uh, you know, with regard to access to healthcare, employment, equal opportunities. So, you know, if I would ask you how enormous is the problem of fat phobia that people often overlook, what would you say? I mean, it's, it's huge. Yeah. (laughs) It's, it's huge. And this is this is something that can look look differently in different countries. Okay. Um, a lot of the data and the research that I have on this is specific to to the United States because that's where I live. Yeah. Um, but a lot a lot of this stuff is true around the world. Um, so I have I actually have a study in front of me that has a really good list that I read from on a regular basis. And so here are just some of the things that it lists as ways that fat people experience oppression, okay? So fat people are denied access to or charged more for life insurance and health insurance. Yeah. They are denied, denied medical care. They are frequent victims of medical negligence and malpractice. They receive, so if they do receive medical care, they receive a far lower quality of medical care across the board. Uh, They are less likely to get jobs or promotions that they are qualified for. They are more likely to be fired from a job without cause. They make less money than our thin counterparts for the same work across the board. They are likely to be graded more harshly in an academic setting than our thin peers. They are less likely to be respected than their thin colleagues. They are denied access to or charged more for public transport. They are denied access to public spaces due to inadequate seating or other problems, for examples like waiting rooms, event venues, concert halls, stadiums, amusement parks, etc. Uh, we are less likely to be believed when we report rape to the police. 
and we are denied access to clothes that we want and sometimes any clothes at all. Um, And then finally, we are faced with constant negative stereotypes in both institutions and interpersonal relationships that fat people are lazy, lacking in self-discipline, less competent, less intelligent, non-compliant, and sloppy. And again, I'm reading directly from a study. Yeah, that's just so horrible. I mean, the whole part about how, you know, rape victims are less believed. I can't even believe that's like a thing. Yeah. 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 It's it's super common. Like any so and and by the way, studies have also this the research is a little bit more murky on this, but um, there have been some studies that have suggested that fat people are also more likely to be victims of assault or domestic violence. And then when we go to report that that has happened, yeah. again, we're less likely to be believed. And so even even though we're potentially we're potentially more frequent victims of sexual assault, we're less likely to believe even when we do report it to the police. Yeah, that's just horrible. Ato, you mentioned about yeah. medical bias, right? And I was just uh, you know watching the video on your social media, but I would like you to share it here about you know what was your personal uh, you know experience like with me- medical bias and gaslighting when you oh, went yeah. to surgery. That story, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So that is that has been like a really critical turning point in my life also because I would say that that was the point that kind of transformed my own experience from being exclusively about self-acceptance to truly being about like activism and fat liberation. So I have had chronic back pain my whole life. It is something that I literally don't have any memories from when I didn't have back pain. So it has just always, always been present. And I've tried every possible thing you can imagine to fix it. I've done, I've gone to chiropractors, physical therapists. I've gotten like regular massages. Um, I've gotten like cortisone injections into my spine. (laughs) Like every possible thing you can imagine. I did it for like more than a decade. And eventually, I knew that like the final thing that was an option for me would be a spinal fusion surgery. And so what actually ended up happening was that my back pain got increasingly severe and this was a few years ago. And so a few years ago, I noticed that like I started getting numbness in my like right thigh and I was like, oh no, that's new. (laughs) And so I went to the doctor and I had some x-rays done and they were like, yeah, you have a bunch of micro fractures in your back, which means that basically I had a broken back. And they were like, you need to have a spinal fusion surgery done. That's the only way that that is going to be fixed. And I was like, okay. That sounds painful. <laughs> <It's time. laughs> yep, it was, it was pretty bad. And so I did a bunch of research. I found an orthopedic surgery practice that was like renowned in the area where I live and still is. And I was like, okay, this place has great reviews. Everybody raves about how like awesome they are. I was like, this is the place where I'm gonna get my spinal fusion surgery done. Trying to look for like, you know, the best possible quality healthcare, right? (laughs) And so I booked an appointment to have a consultation for surgery. 
and they asked me they asked to get my weight and if you've seen any of my other yeah. videos you know that oftentimes I, I oftentimes I tell people that it's it's okay to decline to be weighed except for certain circumstances and so but this was one of those circumstances so like normally I never agree to be weighed but I know that for surgery they need to administer anesthesia mm. and so I was like well they're gonna need to know my weight anyway because that is something that you have to know someone's weight in order to be able to do and so I agreed to be weighed, <laughs> which, oh, just the fat phobia that comes from that one small action. Good Lord. Yeah. And so then the, the appointment starts, the doctor walks in and he says, like, literally, we're not even together for more than like two minutes. And he's like, well, your weight is high. So we're going to need you to lose weight if you want to have this surgery. And I looked him dead in the eye. And there's so many things I could have said, by the way. Like, mm-hmm. I, I work with clients a lot on basically how to navigate the medical world yeah. in, in a very, very, very fat phobic world. And there are lots of things that you can say to try to, like, refute these sort of restrictions. But I chose, as someone with a history of disordered eating, to try to appeal to a doctor who has a moral and a legal obligation to do no harm. Mm. And so I... I told him, I was like, that's not an option for me. I have a history of disordered eating and weight loss behaviors are incredibly harmful for me. And he was like, first of all, shocked. (laughs) He was like totally shocked that I had said that. Um, I mean, partly because I think he's not used to people pushing back on him and partly because like I'm a person in a fat body telling him that I have a history of eating disorders. Mm. And... (laughs) He was like, he sort of like stumbled over his words and he was like, okay, um, could you lose a little bit of weight? <laughs> and, I, and I was just like, what? <laughs> Did you not hear what I just said? <laughs> and so he was very confused and he was like, okay, well, let's just get the appointment over with. And so again, they took x-rays, they reviewed the images with me and he was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like you absolutely need this surgery. The surgery is medically necessary. Okay. And he still was like, and you have to lose weight before you can. <laughs> and so then I like sprung into like research Hannah mode. <laughs> and I was like, okay, tell me, I was like, tell me exactly what the problem is. Like, tell me specifically. And he was like, well, studies have shown that anesthesia can be more dangerous for people in higher body weights. And I was like, yeah, that's true. But from the research that I have read, it's actually it's actually more about the fact that anesthesiologists are not trained on patients in fat bodies. And so they literally like don't have the experience necessary to be able to treat us well. And he was like, yeah, that's true. <laughs> and I was like, okay. And he was like, it's still a risk factor though. And I was just like, okay, so like, what about people who get weight loss surgery? Don't they need anesthesia for that? And he was just like, yeah. (laughs) And so just poking holes in all of this, like so hard. And eventually he was like, I don't know what to tell you. It's our policy. And he was just like, this is just a policy that our practice has. And this is something that I've learned since then that so many hospitals and like private practice surgical offices have is that they literally will create a BMI cutoff. And then what they will do 
which is also what this doctor did, is that they will funnel you to their in-house weight loss program. So they had a weight loss program and he was like, so we're going to need you to participate in this program. Um, It's super expensive and takes a really long time. (laughs) And like, that is what you have to do before we will do surgery on you. And I effectively called out the fact that that is a scam. And I called out the fact, I was like, okay, so you have, like, this practice has put this weight restriction in place. You have said that nobody over a BMI of whatever, no one over a BMI of X can have access to surgery. And so they have to pay you guys money to get around a policy that you have created. And he was like, super uncomfortable. (laughs) Capitalism is such a sham. It's such a sham. And he just like refused to answer me. And he was like, I don't know what to tell you. And so I ended up having a battle with this surgical practice for a year. Year. And and so truly looking back, and I did not know this at the time because this was really my first like hardcore experience with this type of medical fat phobia and like flat out discrimination. Um, what I didn't know is like what I should have done is just find a different surgeon. <laughs> That's what I should have done. But I was like so invested and I'd already started the process. And I'd already waited so long to get this appointment in the first place that I was just like deterred from doing that. And there are doctors and surgeons who don't have these restrictions in place who you can get better care from, but they are, they're few and far between. So it takes a lot more research in order to find them. Um, And so that's what I should have done. But what I actually did, like I said, was have a year long battle with this practice where they had me do all of these extra tests, all these extra assessments to basically determine like my health and like if I would be able to sustain the effects or um, withstand the effects of surgery. They had me do blood work. They had me do additional x-rays. They had me do an MRI. They had me do what's called a risk assessment, which (laughs) was so stupid. I essentially went in and met with a physical therapist and she had me do all of these like physical tests that are designed for elderly people <laughs> where like you you show that you're able to stand up without using arms on a chair you show that you're able to stand on one foot for 20 seconds and she was like yeah this is designed for elderly people I don't know why they told you you have to do this and I was like it's because I'm fat and they are like it's putting me through the ringer and so she was like super apologetic and she kept saying like I'm sorry that they called for this this is stupid (laughs) (laughs) and 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 eventually after doing all of these additional tests all of these additional assessments right I am like the picture of health I'm young I have my heart is in great condition I have like low cholesterol perfect blood pressure like everything is great and they are still refusing to do the damn surgery. And so ultimately I told them that this is discrimination and I was prepared to sue. And the next day I got a call to schedule. <laughs> okay. It, it was the most ridiculous thing I've ever been through. And that is common. I, that is what I learned from that experience is that fat people are denied medically necessary healthcare. And and, I mean, just uh, for reasons that are so arbitrary, like 
I looked into the studies that he referenced about the harm, like the dangers of anesthesia. And again, all of them had to do more with the experience of the anesthesiologist than they did about the actual like body size of the patient. And again, the fact that the fact that weight loss surgery is so common, like millions of people have this done and there are very, very, very few complications from anesthesia on record shows that it can be done. Yeah. You also mentioned about the BMI cutoff, right? So doesn't BMI also have a very racist and problematic history? Oh my gosh. It's, yeah, it's bad. <laughs> the fact the fact that we're still using this at all is just such a commentary on how adverse we are to change <laughs> problematic health policies. So the BMI was created in the 1830s by a Belgian mathematician, statistician, and astronomer, and his name was Adolf Quetelet. And so he... He was effectively, like, given a job to create a metric that would um, measure body size across populations. So this was never, never meant to measure the health of individuals. And he even said that in the publications that he wrote about the BMI. Although at that time, it was known as Quetelet's Index because that was his name. Um, So he was a eugenicist. And so this was also a personal passion project for him to discover what he called the quote, ideal man. Oh my God. So he took, yeah, it's just, it's just awful. And so he took participants from all white Western countries. Um, There were no people of color and there were no women who were factored in to the creation of the BMI. Um, And then based on the information, right, like, so the BMI is actually a mathematical equation. So it is basically like, what, what, what is it? It's like height over weight squared or something. Um, It's essentially an equation involving height and weight. And then what that equation does is it assigns a number and that number means nothing. It is literally just like an equation that creates a number. And then what Quetelet did is he took those numbers and he broke them into arbitrary categories. So he created the categories. Again, he's not a doctor. He's not a medical professional. He took this random number that was generated from an equation and said, basically everybody above this line is in danger with no like research or data to support that. And so... He broke them into categories of like underweight, quote, normal, overweight, obese. And then there's a second category of obesity above that as well. This, again, does not take into account women or men. And it also doesn't mean anything. It has never meant anything. These are numbers that are arbitrarily broken into categories. There was never any data to support that there were like severe health impacts if your number moves from a 25 to a 26, right? Which is like the numeric difference if we're being quote overweight. Like there's actually data that says that people who are in the quote overweight category actually have the longest lives of people in any category of the BMI. <laughs> and so even, even people who are in the quote normal category 
live shorter lives than people in the overweight category. So it's just, it's totally arbitrary. It means nothing. Oh, and then again, so coming back to the fact that he was a eugenicist. So this then was the tool, the BMI was used to basically continue the efforts of racist science for many years. It was used to forcibly sterilize people of color. Oh my. Um, for, yeah, for many years. And so that was something that certainly happened in a large way. And then what happened afterwards? So for a while, the BMI kind of fell into obscurity in like uh, the, the late like 20th century, or sorry, the late 19th century. And the only thing that changed that was that in the early 1900s, Um, insurance companies decided to adopt the BMI as a way of determining the amount that people would pay for their insurance. And that was it. So they started using the BMI to determine who they could charge more money to for life insurance and then later health insurance. And so when this started being used by health insurance companies was the way that this came into the medical world. And so, and it's just so stupid. I think we we should all agree that like medical data and healthcare research should inform insurance policies, but it is often reversed. It is often that health insurance policies that are based in nothing determine healthcare practices and medical policies, which is exactly what happened in the case of the BMI. And so now because health insurance companies require the BMI, that is why doctors have to, well, they don't have to, but they're supposed to assign one at every single doctor's appointment. That's why you get weighed at every doctor's appointment, even if it's not relevant for what you came in for. Mm. Yeah, so, I mean, I'll just come to the last question that I have for you. Is that, you know, as a therapist and life coach, what's the one advice that you would like to give, you know, young people listening, something that you wish somebody told you when you were a teenager? Oh, <laughs> Yeah, I wish, yeah, there's so much I wish, <laughs> there's so much that I wish people had said to me when I was a teenager. <laughs> Um, yeah, I mean, you're, you're fine. Like, you're just fine. Like, this is such a strong message, the message to become thin, to make yourself smaller, to manipulate your food intake, right? All of that. That is such a powerful message that, like, we have to start moving away from. We just, we have to. It leads to depression and anxiety. It leads to eating disorders, which can often lead to death. Um, Dieting leads to health problems. And it leads oftentimes to thoughts of suicide. Like, the, the health consequences, both mental and physical, of dieting are severe. Like, they're very severe. And I would just encourage kids, like, you're okay. <laughs> you're okay. Like, listen to your listen to your body. Your body is looking out for you. You know, eat when you're hungry. Stop when you're full. That's it. Like, if you want to learn more about that, look into intuitive eating. Maybe read a book on that. But, like, your body knows what's best. 
your body will tell you when it's hungry and it'll tell you what it's craving like just listen to it it is the most sophisticated system that we have it is smarter than we are your body will tell you what it's asking for just like please trust yourself and please trust your body yeah i think that's such an uh, important thing just like somebody reiterating that you're fine you know uh, just so important yeah uh yeah and like it's something that we don't hear yeah yeah exactly something so simple but it kind of needs the need somebody to be you know somebody to reiterate or reassure you yeah and like i wish i had i, I wish i had anybody to tell me that because when i was younger anytime i wanted to lose weight all i heard was praise right anytime i was dieting people praised me yeah. and that was not something i ever got when i wasn't dieting that was the only time i ever got praise was when i was actively pursuing weight loss because it was a huge value in my family and in my sort of like social world um and if you go <laughs> if you go your life without like any significant or consistent acknowledgement of like your other attributes like your intelligence your skills um the things that you're good at if like the only things that you get any meaningful or consistent praise for are your physical appearance and especially if you are like dieting and making your body smaller like what is that going to tell a kid yeah. like what message does that send to them yeah right so Okay, thank you so much for talking to me. I feel like this conversation has been so enlightening. I just got so much scope for reflecting and unlearning. It's been such a pleasure talking to you, Hannah. Awesome. Yeah, I so enjoyed it and I really am excited to see this podcast and where it takes you. Yeah, thank you so much. Talk to you soon.